All right, so we're going to dive back in to Revelation, and uh, I'm excited about this week because I've always wanted to study these verses in the Bible, like more in depth. I've read this many, many times, Revelation 19, 11 through 16 are some of my favorite verses in the Bible because this is the return of Christ. I mean, this is it, that we're there uh, in the narrative, and, uh, and so... Um, this is exciting. The other thing that I realize, and I know I joke about it, I know I talk too fast. I know I have a problem. I think the first, the first uh, step to recovery is n- knowing that you have a problem. <laughs> I'm going to try to slow down, but I also, as I keep the the deeper I get into Revelation, the more I just I feel like it, it's opened my eyes, and I just I've never dug into some of this before, so I think. We're just going to have to take a little bit longer <laughs> to finish. I was going to try to finish it by Christmas. And last night I was like, maybe next Christmas. So we'll, <laughs> uh, there's just a lot of really good stuff coming. And I just feel like it would be, it just would not make any sense to rush through, not only return, I mean this, but I mean, we're, we're about to get into uh, Satan being bound in the abyss, the thousand year kingdom, which the whole Old Testament, I mean, we should, we should just start with Genesis and walk through the Old Testament at that point, you know, and uh I just was like, this is, this is going to be crazy to try to speed. So uh, anyway, we'll just see where we end up today. You know, it might just be the intro. I'm just, no, that's, I can't go. I can't do that. <laughs> I want to move, uh, but I wanted to make sure that uh, I'm not doing a disservice to what we're, we're going to be reading. So just to catch you up, uh, we have just finished uh, basically this, um, uh, this insertion into the the bold judgments and kind of the the chronology of what is happening here at the end uh and that we were that was in revelation 17 1 through 19 10 uh, and basically that was where we were talking about the fall of babylon and it's just it's this uh, it kind of pulls us back out of the scene we talked about it being similar to revelation 12 through 14 where john is pulled out of the the chronology the sequence of god's judgment at the end and you see this his uh this this huge um picture of the history of the Messiah and of Israel and Satan's desire to, to stop uh, the, the promised seed from crushing his head, if you want to say it that way, from Genesis 3 terminology. Um, and then we're put back into the chronology. And here we pulled out, we looked at Babylon as a whole, what Babylon is, uh, it's, it's kind of how it's in, uh, infiltrated the whole world, and then focusing primarily on the city of Babylon at the very end uh, and the judgment that will be poured out on the city of Babylon um, and the world system and all of that. And so, and then we talked about last week, so that we, we looked at the, uh, the, the judgment in chapter 17 and 18, the religious political judgment in chapter, chapter 17, the economic commercial judgment uh, in chapter 18, where the, the people of the world are lamenting as they watch the city fall, as they watch it burn. Um, and, uh, and they're basically saying, all these things we love, they're gone, you know? Um, uh, and then the other perspective of the very same judgment was the heavenly perspective, which we looked at last week. Uh, Revelation 19, 1 through 10, is the viewpoint from heaven as this stuff is happening. And in heaven, there's just rejoicing, overwhelming joy uh, at, at the Lord um, finally destroying uh, false religion, uh, the world system, uh, the city of Babylon, uh, the one that has basically, uh, I mean, the, 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 the system that has spilt the blood of all of the saints and all the ones that were in heaven and have been praying for that. And so we saw the angels singing hallelujah, the elders singing hallelujah, the saints singing hallelujah. We talked about how uh, hallelujah means. It means praise the Lord. But, but 
almost every time in Scripture. In fact, all the, the hallelujah psalms or the hallel psalms, they're praising the Lord for the deliverance of his people, salvation for his people, that sort of stuff. But it always comes with the judgment of their enemies. So whether you're talking about Egypt or whether you're talking about Babylon, where we're talking about the end, these, these hallelujah psalms are, are his deliverance, his redemption, his salvation. And that's what we're looking at in Revelation 19, 1 through 10. It's kind of the, the grand hallelujah psalm. And, uh, and then we saw the marriage of the Lamb. And the, it has come. The bride has made herself ready. And now it's time for the bridegroom and the bride to come uh, and to, to inherit what is theirs. And basically, and I, I told you, I got the terminology from somewhere as I was reading, but the next thousand years will be a thousand year uh, marriage ceremony um, as we watch the Lord gather all of his people, you know, uh, into his kingdom. And uh, there'll be uh, rejoicing, celebration. Finally, there'll be um, one final uh, judgment of evil, and then the new heavens and the new earth, where you could say is the, the consummation of, of the, the marriage of the Lord and his people for all eternity. So, all that being said, that's where we left off. We left off with the marriage supper of the Lamb, and now we are going to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. We're getting back into, basically, like I said, that sequential chronological judgment, uh, how this plays out. Uh, and we, the last time we read it really was in chapter 16, which would be good to go back and to read that. But let's read uh, what we're going to look at today. Um, and this may be as far as we make it today. I was going to try to finish the whole chapter 19, and I just thought, we'll see. All right. So the return of Christ, our King. He says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. <clears throat> and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray and just ask the Lord to help us to comprehend this. Father, your, your entire word uh, is, is so deep, so profound and, and wonderful. Uh, but we also know that, that it's, it's simple to understand. We are able to comprehend your truth. And it was meant for us to... For, for you to reveal to us, those who belong to you, uh, your will, your ways, um, uh, our, how we are to, to live our lives. Um, and so it is comprehensible. But we also know it's unfathomable at the same time. And, and we know that th- these verses today are, are, are just, we look at them and, and we know that these are very big words uh, for a very big event. Something we all long for and hope for and cannot wait to see and at the same time. Uh, it, it just it blows our minds. And Father, we just pray today that, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, that, that we would explain your word clearly and understand it uh, so that we will live in a way that honors you and glorifies you, so that we will be sober in the way that we think and speak and act in this life. And we would long to be holy uh, because you will make us holy. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. And thank you for the church and thank you for this time. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. Well, like I said, and maybe I should have done this before I read it, but I think it might be helpful to, to actually look at, the, look at Revelation 16. I wrote it up here. And then read this together with that. 
Um, but if you look back in your Bibles, Revelation 16, you can start it in verse 12. Um, and this is where we have the sixth and the seventh bowl judgment. So if you, fa- if you read 16 and then you jump right over to Revelation 19.11, it, it's the same uh, um, sequence of events uh, with the, the judgments here. Um, and like I said, we pulled out for 17 and 18. And so it says in Revelation 16, 12 through 21, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and his water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. Now, I know I didn't get to teach this to you guys. Joel was teaching this. But if you do look at the bowl judgments, this is a strange one. If you don't know the Old Testament and you don't know what we're about to talk about today, you know, you got like, you know, the third of the earth dying, third of the earth, the grass being burned. Up. I mean, it, it, the, everything has fallen apart in major ways, and then one river gets dried up. You know what I mean? And you're just kind of like, why? Well, we're going to find out why today. I mean, he tells us why here, but you're going to see this is very purposeful. So the sixth bold judgment on the earth was that the Euphrates River would dry up and a way would be prepared for the kings of the east. Uh, And he says, and I saw coming out of the mouth the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast. This is Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet. uh, Three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, so that defines what the spirits are. They're performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. So, I mean, again, just the the greatness of our Lord. Using miraculous works, using false teaching to persuade the kings of this earth to come out and to fight Christ and to fight the people of God at the very end. You know, again, just all things are in his control. Uh, And so Satan is doing the will of God like he always does as he strives to fight against the will of God, as he always does. But again, just remember, our Lord is in control of all things. Uh, And he says, so he gathers, he's going to gather everyone together for this great day um, of of God the Almighty. He says, behold, I am coming like a a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. That's going to make more sense today. So it's a call to the church here at the very end. It's a call to everyone. People reading this in Revelation, reading this during the tribulation, a call to you and me. To, to, to be sober-minded, he is coming soon, to make sure you are clothing yourself in righteousness and holiness. And I mean, what Shane just talked about in there, don't be living with the formal formalities of the Christian life, pretend to be something you're not. Who cares? Who cares if I think you're a Christian? Who cares if the pastors here think you're a Christian? Who cares if your family thinks you're a Christian? There's only one person that matters if you know him and if you're following him, and he knows all things. He knows the intentions of your heart better than you do. So, again, just this is a, a call right there in the middle of the judgment. Stay awake. Stay clothed. He's coming soon. The last thing you want to do is him show up, and you're not dressed in, in, the, in, the, in the wedding garb, right? Like the, the parable that Jesus gave us. He says, and they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And he goes on to say, this is the seventh bowl. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. So that's it. I mean, the judgment is over. Seventh bowl, there's no, there's no, there's, we're not going to get into the seventh bowl and dissect that even more. This is the final judgment. Uh, and there were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake such as there's never been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts. That's Israel. The cities of the nations fell. They're done. They're gone. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God. That's what we just talked about. We pulled out. We looked at this whole Babylon the Great thing. But this is, this is the end. This is the final judgment. Um, to give her the cup of the wine of, the, of his fierce wrath. Uh, and every island fled away. The mountains were not found. So again, this is like this earthquake. It, it's, it, 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 it just changes the topography of the, the globe. 
the, the islands sink into the ocean, the mountains fall because the one mountain will be raised above all mountains, Mount Zion, where Christ will, will reign and, and his, his uh, throne will be. Um, and so this is literally the, the earth uh, being devastated by the judgment of God. Again, the best example, the only example that we have of that is the flood. I mean, the flood wasn't just some water coming up and the water going down. I mean, it was the destruction of the earth. The earth that was there before the flood is not there anymore. And we live on the remnants and the leftovers of God's destruction. And we still see those things in volcanic activities and hurricanes and all. I mean, all that stuff is, again, it's not global warming. We've covered that very clearly in this class. That's stuff that is left over from God's first judgment. And it's just a reminder of the, the sinfulness of this world. And another judgment's coming. Um, but he says, so the mountains are gone. The islands are gone. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, which is a very big hailstone. Come down from heaven upon men, and the men blaspheme God. They don't repent to the very end uh, because of the plague of the hail, because this plague was extremely severe. And then we pulled out, and we said, let's look at this, the fall of Babylon. But if you keep reading, then the next, the next beginning of the narrative, it starts with another, uh, um, uh, and I saw, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on the horse is called faithful and true. So judgment's happening, heaven splits open, and here comes Christ. Does that make sense? So that's where we are. Uh, in, in the, like I said, the, the, uh, the story, or in the judgment. And so that being said, let's start, let's look at some of this and see what we can pull out of this today. Um, and, um, and there's just a lot of great stuff here. Uh, and I feel like we can camp out in this for forever and just talk about who Christ is. I mean, there's so many identifications of who he is, uh, what he will be doing, uh, who he is eternally. I mean, we could just camp out in these six verses and just study Christ for a year and, 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 and never get enough of it, you know? But, but I do want to keep moving, but this is probably all we're going to do today. So he says, and I saw heaven open. We've seen this a lot, Kai Idon. We talked about this earlier. I know when I did Revelation 13 and 14 with you guys, he says it over, over and over. It'll say in the English, then I saw, and I saw. And each of these things is something new that the Lord is revealing to John, which is the next sequence of events. So, um, so there's going to be a bunch of these. There's eight of these, and I saw, or then I saw, showing the chronological progression of events from 1911 all the way through 21, verses 1 through 8. So you're going to see in this, uh, then I saw the return of Christ. Uh, in 1917, he's going to say, and then I saw an angel declaring that it's dinner time. And we'll get to that. Uh, in 1919, he's going to say, and then I saw the armies gathered for Armageddon. So that'll be the next event. Uh, in 21 through 3, and then I saw an angel coming to bind Satan in the abyss. So that'll be the next thing after that. In 24 through 10, he says, then I saw the thousand-year millennial kingdom of Christ and describes that in just a few verses, and, uh, and we'll get to that. Uh, in 2011, after that, he says, and then I saw the great white throne of judgment, which happens after the millennial kingdom. And then in verses 12 through 15, you see him say, and then I saw all sinners judged by God. So that's what happens at the great white throne. And then finally in 21, 1 through 8, he says, uh, and then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So this is the, the chronological sequence for the remainder of Revelation. And so you're going to see this Kai Idon thing over and over and over. And it, it just takes us to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And then the, the letter is over. The book is over. So here, pulling it back to 1911, and I saw heaven opened. So the next thing after Babylon, after we saw all that, is he takes him back and he shows him heaven open. Uh, but, but this is different than the first time John saw heaven open. I, I don't, I, again, I wasn't with you, but in Revelation 4.1, he saw heaven open, right? And God invited him to come up to heaven. After the letters to the churches in chapter 2 and 3, 
uh, he, he, heaven opens, and God basically invites John to come to heaven and to watch what's about to unfold at the end. So that we've been looking at this vision that God has given John, uh, this whole book. Uh, in chapter 4-1, there says there was a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice that sounded like a trumpet, which was Christ, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So after the church and after all that. Um, John MacArthur said uh, of this, and I thought this was a good quote. He says, As it did in Revelation 4-1, heaven opened before John's wondering eyes. But unlike Revelation 4-1, heaven opens this time not to let John in, but to let Jesus out. And I was like, oh, that was... That was a good quote. So first time, Jesus is like, come see what I'm going to do. And this time, heaven's open and Christ is coming to inherit what belongs to him and to reign as king and to bring all of his people with him. Um, and uh, another thing that helps us to understand what is going on here is the other places in the Bible where it talks about the Messiah or Jesus, uh, you know, after he's identified in the New Testament or even the Old Testament, the Messiah, uh, coming on, that wasn't me, uh, coming on the, uh, the clouds of heaven. Uh, this is a common theme in Scripture. Uh, in Daniel 7, 9 through 14, Daniel talks about it. He says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him to give him, uh, and, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Uh, that all the peoples, nations, and, of, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. Um, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So again, this is way before Christ, but this is prophesying of who Christ is and what would happen here. What we're witnessing in 1911 is what Daniel prophesied about way, way, way back in the day. Uh, goodness, that would have been through almost 3,000 years, uh, 2,600 years ago. So he talked about Christ on this day that we're talking about, 1901, uh, coming. In Acts, uh, actually Matthew and Acts and Revelation talk about uh, Christ coming um, on the clouds or, or coming from heaven. Uh, in Matthew 26, 63 to 64, uh, Jesus uh, himself says, I tell you hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he himself knew that he would return this way. Uh, in Acts 1, 9 through 11, the angel said it to the apostles. And I always thought this was a, a funny verse because uh, you know, a cloud receives Christ out of their sight into heaven. And they're all staring at the sky. I left this part out, but the angels are looking. <laughs> there's two angels there and they're like, what are you looking at, you know? And, and the answer is, what do you mean what we're looking at? I mean, <laughs> God, Christ, just ascended to heaven, you know? And, uh, but it's just funny because the angels are like, he'll come back. Uh, so they said, this Jesus who has been taken up uh, from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So again, in, in, in like manner, as he went up into the clouds, into heaven, he will return from the clouds to the earth. Uh, and then uh, Revelation 1-7, we've already seen that when it was describing who Christ is in the very first chapter. He says, behold, he is coming uh, with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And again, there's other things we could go into just to talk about. I mean, Christ talked about when he comes. It'll be like the lightning from the east to the west, and all the earth will see it. And it's not going to be some event that's regional. It's not going to be something where some people see, some people don't. I mean, whatever this splitting the heavens open, it will be visible to the whole earth. And all will know that he's coming. So he's going to come in the clouds. He's going to split the heavens open. And, uh, um, but yeah, here's just more. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Again, it's just a, a common thing. That's what I wanted you to see. And so heaven opens and Christ comes. And he's coming uh, from heaven. He's coming on the clouds. And, and then he says, uh, let me go back here. 
uh, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. So behold, again, we've seen this over and over. Actually, you see this many times in the Bible, but in Revelation. And the whole idea here is it just means pay attention. Behold, this is you, you focus. This is unbelievable. This is mind-blowing. Uh, and, and, and again, it is. Here comes the Lamb of God. Um, and I already told you, Matthew 24 and Luke 17, he says, like lightning that comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the Son of Man. Um, and actually, in both of those, uh, I didn't put them up here, but when Jesus talks in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 about his return and, and the heavens opening, the flash of lightning, whatever, um, it says that uh, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. And that's going to come into play in, in this chapter here, uh, because when he splits the heavens open, uh, this is very different than the, the rapture. Um, this isn't in the notes. I don't want to take a super big tangent here. But the rapture, when you look at rapture language, uh, it, it's, it's we ascend from the earth and meet Christ in the sky bodily, that people rise from the dead bodily, and the church meets Christ in the heaven or in the sky, and then he takes us to heaven. Does that make sense? So that's, that's what the rapture is. Here he returns, and when he returns, the people on earth, this is not a good thing. He's not coming to save the people of the earth. He's not coming to save the church. The church has been slaughtered, except for the ones that have been marked and, and kept by him. He's coming to, to destroy. So he splits the heavens and he comes. And basically, we're going to see, he calls the birds to come and eat bodies. And then he, he, and, he, and he wipes out in judgment instantly all those who have come up to Jerusalem uh, to fight him. So, again, just very different language than the rapture. Uh, this is the Lamb of God coming, and he's coming to to destroy his enemies and to, to rescue his people. I mean, his people are coming with him. And it says he was on a, a white horse. Um, uh, being on a white horse, really, I think the only main thing here is just white always uh, in Revelation, uh, except for in one instance, just symbolizes holiness, uh, righteousness. It's always, you know, the, the, the saints are dressed in white. The angels are in white. Uh, Jesus Christ is um, uh, clothed in white. His hair is white. Uh, you, you just see that, just talking about, the again, the purity, the holiness. Uh, so here he comes on a, a white horse, um, and he's coming. Uh, one uh, commentator talked about how Roman soldiers or Roman generals would come in on white horses when there was a victory, and they would march in like a victory parade on a white horse. That's, that's fine, too. Uh, again, the people of the first century would have understood that uh, symbolism, but, but that's not common to us. Uh, but, the, you know, that he is coming in victory, and so I do think that there's, there's legitimacy there. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the white horse symbolizes, but, but I definitely believe it symbolizes his holiness, his righteousness, and he is coming, and we know without a shadow of a doubt he's coming victorious already, and he will rule and he will reign. And so here he splits the heavens open, and he comes in on a white horse, and this is the best part. It's a description of Christ our King. And I just, this is, this is wonderful. So, it says, he who sat on the horse. The focus now is not the horse anymore, but the guy on the horse. Because that's, that's the focus of the whole Bible. He who sat on the horse. Uh, it's going to tell us a few things here. Uh, a bunch of things here. He's going to be named four times with six different names. And we're going to look at those names. Uh, he's going to be called Faithful. He is called True. Uh, he's given an unknown name, which that won't be hard uh, to talk about. And then uh, the Word of God, he's called the Word of God, he's called the King of Kings, and he's called the Lord of Lords. And so the first thing it says that uh, the one who sat on the horse is called faithful and true. Uh, the word faithful there, it, it, it means what it says. It's, it just means he is trustworthy, he is reliable, he is sure. 
the word true just means he is genuine, he is truthful. The one who is coming, he is faithful. He's faithful always to who he is, to who his character is. He, he does what he says he's going to do. He is who he says he is. There's no wavering with him. There's none of the formality that we talked about with him. This is the one who is always faithful and true. Our faithfulness and our sincerity and our truthfulness is a desire to reflect his faithfulness and truthfulness. But he is the one that comes and he is always faithful and true. He, uh, in Revelation 3, it's already identified Christ as the amen, uh, the faithful and true witness. And so again, basically uh, what that's saying in, in Revelation 3 is if Jesus says it, 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 is, it is sure. Because whatever he says, it will be, let it be, he is the faithful true witness. Not only because he knows and sees all things, but because he controls all things. And so when Christ says something will happen, it must happen. It can't not happen uh, because he's the faithful and true witness. And again, if you look at the, um, uh, just the Bible as a whole, you see this description of God many times in the Bible. He's always called the faithful God. He's always called true. All that he speaks is true. And, and he is faithful to all he does. Even, and I didn't have it up here, but in, in, is it 2 Timothy 1 or 2, where it talks about even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. It doesn't matter what we do. He must be faithful because he is faithful, and he can't deny himself. You know, people always try to make up those little silly things like, well, if God's so powerful, can he make a rock so big that you can't lift it? And, you know, and you're like, oh, it's not mind-blowing. The answer is no. <laughs> he can't <laughs> because God would never do anything that goes against who he is. You know, it's God can't sin. There's a lot of things God can't do because, because God is faithful and true. And the fact that we can do those things doesn't show our freedom and power. It shows our enslavement to sin and how much unlike him we are, you know. Uh, so God can't deny himself. Deuteronomy 7, 9, when God reveals himself to Moses, the way he describes himself, he says, The Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he will rescue his people. He will fulfill everything he said he would fulfill. He's going to do everything he proclaims here in Revelation 19 because he can't not. Because Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness. All he has spoken, all that he has promised, all must be done and will be done and will be accomplished exactly like he says it because he is faithful and true. You and I are the ones with limitations. We may not be able to comprehend all of like exactly how this happens, but it will happen exactly like this. That's what I'm saying when we talk about Revelation. It is, a, it is an unveiling. It is a revelation. This will happen, and we can understand it. But we're not going to comprehend the depths of exactly how it will happen, but it will happen exactly like he says it. Does that make sense? And so what we want to do is go, what exactly does it mean? And then just with all the, you know, it's what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, right? The things revealed to us, those belong to us. The things that aren't revealed, those belong to him. And, there's, and don't waste your time trying to contemplate the things that weren't revealed to you. But that's as we get into speculation and heresy, uh, and there's no good in that. So it would be impossible for him not to return because he is who he is. So it says that he will, uh, that his name is faithful and true. Um, and then it says, uh, I'm trying to find it, in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So the faithful and true God will come, and in righteousness, he will judge and he will re- uh, wage war. Uh, in righteousness, it just means in perfect justice, perfect, what is right in the sight of God, in uprightness. Uh, he will come and he will judge. Two verbs here. The first means, uh, the word judge 
Uh, again, a lot of times we think of it just like a, a judgment or like punishment, which it, it does have that connotation. But here it comes with perfect righteousness. So, and, and to judge means to discern. It means to distinguish. It means to separate. Uh, for the purpose of, of punishing evil and, and of, 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 of saving or uh, helping uh, good, you know, but, but he does it perfectly. And we look around our world all the time, and we call evil good, good, evil. We've you know, got areas that we don't know if that's good or that is evil. We're, you know, we don't have perfect judgment, but he does. He has perfect judgment, and it's based upon perfect righteousness. And so when he comes and he separates, when he comes and he passes judgment, when he comes and he distinguishes, his distinguishing is perfect. You know, when we think of the word discriminate, we think of it as a negative connotation because it usually has something to do with racism, right? But, but, but the word discrimination is a great word because it means that you're able to distinguish and separate one thing from another. So to have, to, to have um, discrimination between good and evil is a good thing. You want that. Uh, to, to be able to distinguish and discern rightly between what is good and what is not, what is of God and what is not, is a wonderful thing. You know, So when he comes, he judges perfectly and in righteousness, and he wages war. I mean, he comes to fight. That's why he comes. The first time he came, to save and rescue. The second time he comes, to destroy. And when God wages war, God always wins. And you're going to see it's not much of a battle. The last thing you want to do is to be standing on the opposite side of Christ when he comes to wage war. There's, there's no... I mean, you're going to see that. The most powerful beings on the earth at the time, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they can't do much. Satan, the most powerful being created by God, can't do anything to stop Christ when he comes to wage war. And he does it in righteousness. You've got to think about, you know, our command is to love our enemies. And the reason we love our enemies is because we're reflect, reflecting the humanity, what Christ did the first time he comes, and it shows our trust in God. We don't, hold grudges, and we don't act in vengeance, and we don't uh, uh, you know, live in anger and bitterness in our heart towards our enemies because of two things. First, Christ didn't do that, thank God, because you and I wouldn't be sitting here. And secondly, we're leaving room for his wrath. He just basically is telling us, you be patient. You trust me. You lay down your life for your enemies and you love them. I will take care of destroying them. But that's in his timing. Because many of the people that we think are enemies may become brothers and sisters. Many of the people that we think are enemies, we, we, we don't have perfect judgment. The last thing we want to do in our lack of perfect judgment is to try to go out and act in the vengeance of God. The, our command is this. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Revelation 19, this is it. This is the day of vengeance. There's many days of vengeance. There's many days of the Lord. The Lord has come and destroyed enemies throughout history. This is the final day of vengeance. And there will be a final day of vengeance, if you want to call it that, on the day of judgment, eternal vengeance. There will be vengeance and there will be revenge. And, but only God can act with vengeance and holiness and righteousness. We don't have that ability. First thing, because just by doing it, we're disobeying what he says, right? So by acting in vengeance, we're automatically acting in unholiness and disobedience. So that's not our job. That's his job. But he will act in vengeance, and he is a holy God. Hebrews 10, 30 through 31, a warning to you and I as Christians, that we, um, we who, uh, I'm sorry, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's in the Old Testament. I can't remember the, the reference. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hand of the living God. 
So you and I, we love our enemies, we lay in our lives for them, we submit to Jesus Christ, we trust him even if we die in this life. There will come a day where he will avenge the blood of all of his people. And this is the day. This is what we're talking about. So the Lord, actually this is cool too, the Lord declared this. See, this is why I can't go quick. There's so much good stuff here. <laughs> Uh, so check this out. We know Revelation is about Israel. We know Revelation is about the repentance of Israel and God redeeming his people, Israel. Uh, yes, the church is a part of this. We're coming with him. We're going to be with him. But Israel will rise from the dead. They will also be together with him. The harlot bride will become a bride once more. He will save, redeem his people. Um, but this is, such, this is, again, just the, the mind of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 32, right before Moses died, God told Moses, God gave Moses a song, told him to teach the people of Israel this song. Uh, in, in, in Deuteronomy 31, 19, he says, Write this song for yourselves, teach it to the sons of Israel, put it on their lips so this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. So these words were something they were supposed to learn, memorize, sing. And as they say, and if you go look at the content of Deuteronomy 32, it might go into 33, I can't remember. But, but the song is about Israel forsaking him uh, him destroying Israel, him, uh, them, you know, going after idolatry and all this sort of stuff, but then a future where he will save them, he will redeem them, and he will judge all of his enemies. And so, I mean, this was foreordained. As he was creating Israel, he was telling them that you are going to forsake me, that I will divorce you, that you will be a wife of harlotry, but I will rescue you, I will change you, and I will redeem you. And I will destroy all of those who, if you want to say it this way, caused you to go astray or all of those who are against you, you know? And so this is part of that song. In the very end of the song, it tells us what's happening right here in Revelation 19. It says, for the Lord will vindicate his people. This is what Revelation 19 is about. Christ splitting the heavens open, the Messiah coming, he's going to vindicate his people. He says, and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone, that there is none remaining, bond or free, and he will say, where are their gods? After all these years of forsaking, I mean, right now Israel's forsaking Christ. You know, there's, there's Jews in the church that are coming to Christ, but the nation of Israel has rejected Christ uh, and for 2,000 years now. And he's going to say to them, where, where are your gods now? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up. Go find your gods, Israel. Where are they at? And help you. Let them be your hiding place. But look at this. See now. So finally, one day they will see. This is their repentance. See now that I, I am he. I am your God, he says. And there is no God besides me. It took them at least 2,000 years to figure this out. And, and, and even before that, as they were going after other idols. This is him talking to his harlot bride. It is I who put to death and, and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who will heal. He says, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So again, this is all part of his plan, his timing. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. So he's just like, if, when, when the timing comes and I decide today's the day of vengeance, they're done. He says, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. From the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. That's what's happening in Revelation 19. Jesus Christ is coming to spill the blood of all of his enemies 
and to redeem his people and to save his land. He's coming to, to, to inherit the earth. And, and this is what Romans talks about in Romans 8, where all of creation longs and groans for the day of the revealing of the sons of God as, as, as the armies of heaven come with him, as he comes on his white horse, as he, as he redeems his people Israel, as he redeems the planet. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. But this is what we're talking about. So Revelation 19, 19 was prophesied in Deuteronomy 32. And this is the Lord that we're talking about. This is Yahweh God, Jesus Christ. He comes, and he comes to wage war. The time of patience, the time of grace, the time of gentleness, which is now, where he's calling his enemies to come to himself, to repent, to believe, to follow him. Right now, he's rescuing his enemies. But the rescue is over at this point. At this point, those who once were his enemies and are now made his children are coming with him as his family. And those who are remaining to stand steadfast against him, he will destroy so back to the text. A white horse, he set on it, is faithful. He set on it, is true. In righteousness, he judges. In righteousness, he wages war. And then look at this. This is wonderful and terrifying all at the same time. It says, his eyes, Jesus, the eyes of Christ, are a flame of fire. The eyes of Christ are a flame of fire. Uh, basically, uh, we saw in Revelation 1, 14, uh, it talks about, Uh, His head and his hair were white like wool. Again, just the purity, the holiness like snow. But his eyes were like a flame of fire. There's something to this that is not, uh, you know, uh, people try to equate this with the Holy Spirit. You know, they use uh, axe and the the flame of fire is over their head and all that. And they talk, it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Not that it has nothing to do with him. I mean, he's there, he's part of all this. But this 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 is judgment. This is the fire of the wrath of God, if you want to say it that way, kindled in the eyes of Christ because it's about to happen. We've seen fire in Revelation. I remember the last time, we, uh, I don't think I put it in the notes, um, but when we were at the throne of God, I think it was in Revelation 14, and they were all rejoicing and singing, that sea of glass had become fire. And, and we talked about that being just the, the wrath of God, being just it's the, the, the machine of wrath has begun to, to burn because it's about to be poured out. Um, so when we see Christ with eyes of fire, uh, again, this, I think this goes back to the, the judgment we just talked about. He's coming to discern, very to cut. Actually, that's why I put Hebrews up there. Uh, he's going to come and discern perfectly, and he is going to pour out vengeance and judgment on all of his enemies in absolute holiness and imperfection. In, in, in fact, in Hebrews 4, the word of God, and I'll show you this later because we're going to talk about that. Uh, Christ is the word of God. Uh, and so if you, you can look at this in the Bible. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That is absolutely true. But Christ himself also is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And look at it. It says there is no creature hidden from his sight, speaking of the word of God. So Christ is the one that knows thoughts and intentions of the heart, is able to judge perfectly and distinguish better than we are. We always think our intentions are good. Well, I didn't mean to. I mean, I, I meant good. It's like, but Christ knows. And, and, and uh, he knows the intentions of the heart perfectly. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So again, when you talk about his eyes being a flame of fire, it is judgment. It is, it is the vengeance of God in his eyes. But that vengeance is, I mean, he is laser focused on his enemies with piercing judgment. That, that judges perfectly with no hiddenness. Again, great sermon for today. There is no formality here. You cannot stand there and be like, well, I did this, I did this. It, there's none of that. This is perfect judgment. You're either coming with him 
or you're meeting him for judgment. That's the only two things. There will be no one that can defend themselves on the day that his flaming eyes focus in on them. Um, and actually, this is a really neat quote, and I didn't write down who said this. Uh, I should have. Uh, but one of the commentaries I read, it said, The eyes that wept over his people, full of joy and gentleness, are now directed uh, solely at his enemies. That, that ought to be a, a chilling sentence. Those eyes of, of Christ and his humanity here on earth, that we just talked about, loved children, invited them to sit on his lap, that loved his enemies, that prayed for those who were crucifying him on the cross, that saved one of the men that were next to him. I mean, you know what I mean? The, the, the compassionate, loving, gentle, merciful, gracious Christ that we call out to in our sin. And we know he loves us. And we know he's so patient with us. Even as we continue to sin, at this point, his eyes are a flame of fire. And they are focused directly on his enemies and all those who have, who have persecuted, martyred, and, and humiliated, mocked, insulted, and ridiculed both him and his people since the beginning of time, since the fall of Adam and Eve. And his eyes are looking at the ones that are on earth at this time with judgment. It says, with his children already safe in his arms, his eyes are set uh, with fire, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, set on fire with the holy wrath of his discerning judgment, and he fixes his gaze on his enemies. Again, I was going to put a picture up there, but I just feel like it didn't do it justice. I thought of like that um, uh, Lord of the Rings, the Mordor dude, you know, the eyeball that like, like scans and can see all things. But that's just silly compared to this. I didn't want to, I'm just saying it to tell you how silly it is. This is a piercing, terrifying, I mean, again, it's like he's looking down at the armies that are gathering to fight against him one more time. And, and, and he, is, he is on fire with wrath. Uh, and it says, and his head, on his head are many diadem. Uh, I didn't put this, uh, oh yeah. So yeah. On his head were many diadem. So wrath in his eyes and then crowns on his heads, um, on his head. Uh, the word diadem here, uh, it's, a, it's a transliteration. Uh, we just use it, uh, but it, it means a royal crown. This is a different, actually, I did put this picture up here. We talked about this in um, Revelation 14 uh, when it talks about Christ uh, reaping the earth and it talks about him wearing uh, a stephanos, a, 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 a victor's wreath. This is also a crown, but this is a crown of victory. Um, and so, but here he's wearing a, a crown, a diadem would be a crown of, of, uh, of royalty. He's coming as king. Um, so it doesn't mean that he's not victorious. He's victorious as well. We've already covered that. But here it's just basically showing that this is the eternal sovereign king of all kings. This is the Lord of lords. And he comes with many diadem uh, on his head uh, because he is alone the sovereign ruler of all the earth. This next part uh, uh, is, is one of my favorite. The third thing it says is he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So, we have no idea. <laughs> and we won't know. It's funny reading commentaries because a lot of people speculate what, what might this name be. And I just feel like that's where you just go, you don't know. Like, it, it's clearly stated that we don't know. And I just think, just leave it there and move on. I mean, you, if you want to go speculate, that's fine. But be careful because you don't know. But there is a name that only Christ knows. Now, will the people know it when they see it? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe when he's revealed and it's a name that only... But, but even here, I mean, he's telling them other names that we understand and can comprehend and know. But there's something about this name that we just don't know. 
but it's a glorious name, and, uh, and we'll, we'll figure it out when we're there. But that's it. <laughs> Moving on. All right. The next part says, uh, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Uh, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We're going to talk more about this soon, uh, probably next week. So maybe just pause on that one. Uh, but this is the blood of his enemies. This is the blood, his blood stained garments that have been stained by the blood of all of his enemies. We talked about this already in Revelation 14, uh, 1420, I believe, where it talks about, you know, uh, he, he, he slaughters them all and the blood's like up to the horse's bridle for 200 miles. And I want to revisit that for people that weren't in here and just to, it's a graphic picture of, of this. Uh, it's a prophecy of him from Genesis 49. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll talk more about that soon. But this is, he comes in a white robe stained with the blood of his enemies. Um, and, and like I said, we'll talk more about that soon. Uh, but this final one, it says his name was called uh, the Word of God. His name was called the Word of God. Um, and I wanted to show you a few things. He's been called the Word of God before. Uh, we just read Hebrews four twelve. It talks about the Word of God, and then it talks about it, him, it being a, a him, uh, that there's no cr- creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare before his eyes. Uh, in John 1, 1 through 3, John also wrote Revelation. So John's already talked about Christ being the Word of God before. In John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, he goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being. That's come into being. So He's God. He's the Creator. He was with God. Uh, and then he goes on in verse 14 to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There he is called truth again. So, but all that being said, the word is clearly Christ in John 1. Uh, the word is Christ in Hebrews 4. And here again, Jesus Christ, uh, his name is the word of God. And the word of God has come this time to, from heaven to judge and to wage war. So the word comes to judge and to wage war. The next part is this, uh, a description of the armies that come with him. So you have the king coming. He's on the white horse. He's faithful and true. He's the word of God. He comes with a name unknown. He comes with a robe dipped in blood. And he comes with eyes of fire. And it says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following with him. I'm sorry, following him on white horses. Uh, Again, I was thinking about talking about all the different people that, that commentators think this could be. Uh, but I think the, the best thing is just to say, I think the best biblical answer is that this, these are the saints that we just looked at in Revelation 19.8 coming with him. It doesn't mean it can't be angels as well. It doesn't mean it can't be, uh, you know, saints from the Old Testament and, and all those that are, I mean, yes, we're all coming, you know. But we just talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It just described the saints being dressed in white linen and we have this wedding that has begun, and I think he's bringing the bride to earth. No matter what, it doesn't matter. I mean, these are his people. That for sure we can all say. But the near context is Revelation 19.8. It says, uh, The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is a righteous act of the saints. So in the very near context to this event that just happened, it looks like that we're talking about the saints that have been raptured by, this is the church. The church is returning with him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Uh, now, like I said, I did do a, a quick run through Revelation and looked at all the times 
clothing, white garments, fine linen, that kind of stuff is said. Outside of when it talks about the harlot being clothed in fine linen, basically talking about the worldliness of the world. All the other, the white garment, all that stuff is, you know, uh, the saints. Uh, Revelation 3, uh, three times in Revelation 3, uh, the saints are the ones dressed in white, cleansed by Christ. They walk in him. They walk in white. They're clothed in white. Uh, the 24 elders that are around the throne, which, again, I think you identify. I wasn't there when you guys did that, but I, is, is the saints of God, um, special men that are around the throne of God. Uh, they're clothed in white. Uh, the tribulation saints in Revelation 6 and 7, twice in, in, in chapter 7, are the ones clothed in white robes. Again, so these are ones that are martyred during the tribulation. Um, and, uh, and those are not part of the rapture church. So you got them clothed in white as well. Uh, and I believe they're coming with him. Uh, but, uh, and then he says, um, yeah, those are the ones clothed out of the great tribulation. They've been made white with the blood of the lamb. Uh, but the angels are also clothed in white in uh, Revelation 15, the ones that come from the, uh, the, the temple, out of the temple, and proclaim those three uh, judgments. Um, so all that being said, I don't even know if it necessarily matters if we nail it down and go, this is only humans, not angels. I don't know, why, why would that matter? Uh, but for sure, it's the saints. And they're coming with him to be on this earth, and we know that'll happen. I don't know what angels will be doing during the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. I, I don't really, I haven't studied it, and I don't even know if the Bible is super clear about that. But I imagine they're going to also be accompanying him because they're always accompanying him and always doing his work. So I don't know why it would really matter to nail down whether angels are there or not. But I think what does matter is the saints are coming with him, and they're clothed in white a whiteness that only he produced by his blood, a whiteness that comes from those righteous acts, and they're coming with him to rule and to reign on the earth together with him for a thousand years. And that's amazing. So that's the armies. Uh, they're all falling on white horses. Uh, I think this is just a reflection of them being made like him, coming with him. Uh, and this is what I was talking about in Romans 8 earlier. This is the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation sees all of the sons of God, all the children of God, if you want to say it that way, burst through the heavens or burst out of heaven with Christ, Christ in the front and then behind. And this is what all of creation has been longing for ever since the fall. This is the day. This is the day that he's coming to redeem the earth, to redeem his people. Um, And in 1 John 3, verses 2 through 3, it says, Beloved, we are now children of God, but now it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, what we're talking about right here, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So, again, I just think this is us coming with him, being made like him, being revealed with him. And I think the best biblical answer for who are these armies, it's, it's the saints, it's the children of God, it's the sons of God coming, coming with him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good too. And that's talking, and, and that gets into other things, the gathering of the elect that are, that are, that are here. Um, and we're going to talk about that soon too. But the angels are always doing his work, and they're always with him for sure. All right, uh, do I have time? Okay, let, let me throw one more thing in here. A description of Christ. Let's try to finish this. So it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So from his mouth, a sharp sword. Um, basically, this has already been said of Christ before. Uh, Revelation one sixteen. He says, repent, or else, this is talking to, uh, no, 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 this is, this is not Revelation one sixteen. Repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, I'll make war with the sword of my mouth. I think I wrote the wrong reference. 
Uh, this is in Revelation. I, I feel like this is to one of the churches. I, let me see. It, it, it sounds like a church uh, prophecy, not a chapter one prophecy. But it could, it could be. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a wrong reference. Um, if, if anybody wants to find it real quick. But it's, uh, I bet it's three. It, it sounds like a, yeah, Laodicea. Uh, nope. 2.16. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. Pergamum, therefore repent or else I'm coming quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Them, speaking of, the, uh, of Pergamum, is talking about uh, false teachers that are in the church in Pergamum, and he's basically he's saying, I'm, I'm going to come and destroy these false teachers that are in the church of Pergamum, uh, and he's calling them to repent and to stop leading his people astray. They're putting stumbling blocks before his people, teaching uh, the, the things of Balaam and Balak, uh, which is uh, immorality and idolatry. So, again, and that's, that's so we've already said, we've already seen that he's, he is able to, to judge with his mouth uh, he, and we're going to see that again at the end. John twelve forty eight, 48, uh, Christ says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke will judge him on the last day. I think that's speaking directly of the great white throne. But here, here comes the word of God to, to, with the sword coming out of his mouth to judge and to make war on his enemies. And we already talked about that in uh, Hebrews 4. Uh, and it says he comes with a sword out of his mouth and it tells what he's going to do with it. It says, With it, he will strike down the nations. The word... Uh, to strike down here, um, it means to uh, it means to smite. It means to it can be uh, a heavy blow, but it, it can also be a death blow. Uh, it's the word used for God smiting or striking the sun on the cross, pouring out His wrath on His son. Uh, it's uh, the same word used in Acts seven twenty four when Moses struck the Egyptian, and when Moses struck this Egyptian, the Egyptian died. Uh, so this is a, a death blow. So He comes with a sword from His mouth to. Uh, act in vengeance uh, and judgment on his enemies, and this we're talking about their death. Um, Isaiah eleven four talks about Christ. This is a direct prophecy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and it says that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So again, he comes, and with his words he wipes out uh, his enemies. Isaiah forty, another direct prophecy of Jesus Christ at the end. All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Uh, he, it is, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have been sown, scarcely have the stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. So again, this is just who he is. If, if God wants his enemies gone, they're gone. God doesn't have to fight. God doesn't have to struggle with his enemies. His enemies are only doing his will. His enemies are producing more glory for himself. And through the work of his enemies here on earth, he's saving his children. But there is a day of vengeance coming. And when Christ, from the word of his mouth, slaughters his enemies instantaneously and with ease. Because this is what has always been proclaimed. Right now we know that the Lord is enduring evil so that his children can be saved. But the endurance will end one day and the vengeance will come. And it comes from the word of his mouth. Again, actually, I've said it many times, go read Isaiah as a whole. Isaiah as a whole talks about this whole end times in much more detail than, than Revelation. Revelation helps you pull it together and go, oh, that's what Isaiah is talking about. That's when that happens. But Isaiah gives us detail. In fact, when we get to the millennial kingdom, Revelation's six, seven verses, 
uh, Isaiah's 66 chapters and tells us a lot about it. And so that's probably where we're going to camp out for a while. And it says he'll rule them with a rod of iron. This is good. Uh, when it says he'll rule them with a rod of iron, so he, he strikes them, he kills them, he wipes out his enemies. And it talks about him ruling the earth. This is during the thousand years with a rod of iron. The word for rule here, because again, in, in the context, you're like, that sounds terrifying. But it's not. Yeah, that's right. It means to shepherd. It means to care for. It means to nurture. He's going to rule the world with a rod of iron. So in other words, justice will be very quick. There won't be rapid disobedience, sinfulness on the planet like there is now because justice will be enacted quickly. So if there is rebellion during the thousand-year kingdom, and it is possible because sin is still possible during that time, then, then yes, the rod of judgment, is, it's done because he's going to protect his children. The rod protects us. It destroys his enemies. But here it means that he will shepherd. He will shepherd the earth with a rod of iron for a thousand years. That is comforting for his people. It reminds me of Psalm 23, right? The Lord leads us. He's got a rod. The rod's not to beat us. The rod is to defend us. And that's how he will rule when he's on this planet. Um, uh, and, and so he breaks his enemies with a rod of iron, but he, but he rescues his people with the same rod. I, I wrote down Psalm 2 up there. And then finally, it says that he... Uh, I'm just going to end here just because I want to go into this more next week. But he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. We've already talked about him coming to act in vengeance, uh, but it says he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. He comes to do what God has always proclaimed that he will do in his vengeance uh, and in his justice. And like I said, I think I'm going to end it there today. We'll talk about that next week because that kind of begins. I mean, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is still up there. That's awesome. But after that, we're going to be talking about the wrath. Uh, for the, the remainder of this chapter. And I think it's worth looking into because there's a lot of Old Testament stuff that's going to come out in those verses. So that being said, you got any questions, concerns, conflicts? <laughs> the sword is in 116. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Well, I meant the two. Okay. Maybe that's what happened. I started doing one. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Yeah. Thank you. Is this... Oh, well, actually, hold on. Before we're done, apply. Like, I don't want to just leave you hanging and go, that was cool. <laughs> the point is, is this is our king. This is, this is the judge of sinners. So let's take this and apply it and, and, and marry it together with what Shane said. Get rid of hypocrisy. Rid your life of formalities. Religion and all that. I mean, all this, just, you're not doing this for men. We want to live in, in submission to him, to glorify him, to love him, to honor him. That's how we want to live. Does that make sense? And, and so this is, there is a judgment. And, and, and fake, fake stuff, fake Christianity and, and the show won't, won't play out on this day. The only thing that matters is, is do you act, are you filled with his spirit? Do you belong to him? Have you been washed clean with his blood? Have you been bought by him? And will you be returning with him? And, or, or will you be, will you be on the, the receiving end of the judgment? And I think that, you know, for his children, that, that always, you know, there's joy in this for sure. But anytime I read those warning verses, the Hebrews, and Jesus has stuff like this in, in, in the Gospels, I mean, like he talked about this morning, those ought to be, those are always very sobering for us as his children. Flee from this world, flee from immorality, flee from the love of money, flee from the things here that seduce us, like the harlot seduces with her idolatry and immorality, cling to Christ. This stuff, I mean, we just watched it. Babylon's gone. 
The world will burn. Christ is going to destroy it, and he's going to destroy his enemies as well. But if you belong to him, if he has washed you clean with his blood, if you believe in him, then, then it's joy. You'll return with him to inherit the earth with him, to, to be with him. And he's all we long for in the millennial kingdom. He's all of our focus. And so what we're trying to do now is make only your focus him. Your only love, your only reason to live, your only focus is Christ and Christ alone. So, but yeah, I just, like I said, I, I think that's always my fear with eschatology is, is it's, it's awesome, it's fascinating. It's like, man, that's so amazing. But then, but, but why? And why is let it, let it change the way you think right now, the way that you live right now. Uh, and um, yeah, let it do its work now. Yes. Uh, no. Yeah, but I think we're going to have holy minds that see that this is perfect, you know? Uh, you know, I think, I, I think right now we grieve when our unbelieving relatives die and we contemplate them being in hell. Many times we try to get them into heaven in our minds, even though there was no life that lived in righteousness here on earth. We try to get, you know, but, but you know, so we, it's hard for us now. Uh, but we're also partaking of the sin now. We don't see, I mean, imagine if you saw sin the way he sees sin. I mean, you, you, would, you, would, you would hate this place. You would hate the way, you know what I mean? But you would, you know what I mean? I think we're just going to have new minds and new eyes that this will be, this will be joy. I, I don't imagine there's... We'll love God to the point that we will look at them as his enemies in our Yeah. I think, I think there's truth in that. Yeah. Well, and then the, the tribulation saints in 6 and 7, when they're praying, they're praying for him to, to avenge their blood. And he doesn't rebuke them and go, uh, no, love your enemies. You know, it, that, that's, that's here. Right now we love our enemies. But the, again, the reason is we're exemplifying Christ and many of his enemies, of which we were at one point, may be his children. And so, so but there is a day where love your enemies will not apply anymore. Yeah, that's true. Well, and I think that's a good point with the Great Commission. That ought to be something, uh, I mean, if, if this is true, I mean, we're all saying we believe this, right? Yeah. I mean, you know people that are not going to be a part of this, and it's like that ought to wake us up, and, and we ought to be opening our mouths and talking to them, loving them. That's right. Every single person in this room. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about worshiping him, love, you know, that's the whole love and honor and one, I just, I want to, I just want him to be my soul love. Like, why do I so quickly run to the things of this world? Why are they so mesmerizing so often? You know, it's just like, I mean, this is it. I want him, you know, but so that's what this is meant for. And that is why eschatology is so, I do believe eschatology matters and I do believe we need to study it. And I do believe it is very important. And not only is it important, it's important that you have the right eschatology because it ought to affect the way that you think and live right now. It ought to spur you. I mean, it ought to be sobering for all of us. Yes, we can't believe the grace that we've been shown. This is what we deserve. But by his grace, through what he did on the cross, we can be a part of his, 
his, his, his glory and, and, and his forgiveness. But then we must go out and part of being obedient to him, tell others about him, and then live in a way that glorifies him.